0: Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, sponsored by Movement is Life. We're recording on May 12, 2020. My name is Dr. Mary O'Connor, Chair of Movement is Life and Professor of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at Yale School of Medicine. I'm looking forward to hosting today's discussion, which will hopefully help you, our podcast listeners, understand the concept of a syndemic and how this can help us explain the horrible death rates we're seeing with this COVID-19 pandemic. Having this inclusive framework to see the complex interplay of factors impacting outcomes will help us create solutions for tomorrow. My guests are two leaders in the field, Dr. Robert Like is professor and director of the Center for Healthy Families and Cultural Diversity at the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. He's a family physician with a background in, are you ready? It's very interesting, medical anthropology, and is nationally known for his work in the area of cultural competence and health professional education. He's also an advisor to Movement is Life, who has suggested to us that the syndemic concept helps explain patterns of common comorbidities and their intersections with social determinants. Welcome, Dr. Like. We thank you for your previous contributions to Movement is Life, and we're looking forward to our discussion on syndemics with you today.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. O'Connor. It's been a privilege and honor to work with you and your colleagues at the Movement Is Life Caucus in terms of raising awareness about the causes and potential interventions for musculoskeletal health disparities and uh, other inequities. Uh, As we think about this horrendous COVID-19 pandemic, I'm also reminded of a quote uh, from Sir Austin Bradford Hill, who was the pioneer of the randomized clinical trial who once said, quote, health statistics represent people with the tears wiped off. It's really critical that behind these numbers of people who are dying, who are getting sick, who are becoming disabled, that we understand the stories of individual people, their patient, the patients, family members, colleagues, and others, and we must never lose track of this. So I'm looking forward to our discussion today.
0: Dr. Like that's so beautiful. Health statistics. Our patients with the tears wiped off. I'm going to use that. That's very powerful. Our second guest today is Dr. Emily Mendenhall, a leading thinker on syndemics, the framework for social determinants of health we're discussing today. Dr. Mendenhall is also a medical anthropologist and provost, distinguished associate professor at Georgetown University. Her recent book, Rethinking Diabetes, Entanglements of Trauma, Poverty, and HIV, Invokes hundreds of life histories among low-income people living with type 2 diabetes in Chicago, Delhi, Johannesburg, and Nairobi. These case studies investigate how social, cultural, and epidemiological factors shape people's experiences and why we need to take these differences seriously when thinking about what drives diabetes and how it affects the lives of the poor. In 2017, Dr. Mendenhall led a series of articles on syndemics in The Lancet, which was the most frequently downloaded series of that year in that leading British medical journal. Welcome, Dr. Mendenhall. Thank you for joining us and sharing your insights with us today.
2: Thank you. It's a real privilege to spend this time with you.
0: Well, delighted to have both of you with us, so I'm I'm excited to get right into the discussion. Dr. Mendenhall, let's start with some the basic question of what is a syndemic and what is the history of the development of this new paradigm?
2: Well, thank you um, for that question. I think it's really interesting um, since the publication of the Lancet series, it um, has kind of bursted into public health and global health and people are really thinking with it more. If you look over the last 10 years, there's actually been a kind of incremental use of people in public health. And I think that syndemics is a really good example of an idea from critical medical anthropology that is really applicable and that people can use and understand. And it's kind of like anthropology light in some ways and how it's applied, but it brings together these kind of deep theoretical and decades long, centuries long studies. I mean, going all the way back from Edwin Chadwick Rudolf um, Virchow from the 1800s, and we're talking about how people are sick and why, and how structurally structural inequalities, structural racism, um, institutional inequalities um, really are fueling why some people are, are sick and others aren't. So these are deep-seated um, questions in anthropology that are at the center of a lot of anthropologists' work. And what Syndemics does is it makes this extraordinary effort to put ideas of... Um, of depth, of intersectionality, of structural violence, um, of historical inequality in conversation with biological realities, um, interactions between mental and physical health, with social stressors like stigma, um, and also epidemiology. So when I explain syndemics, I often describe it with these three underlying rules or um, basically framing. um, Yeah, framing rules for what a syndemic is. So the first rule, is that often you can look at the epidemiological literature. And if you look internationally, how people talk about disease, there's been a shift, at least in the funding cycles, in how people think about moving from epidemics to comorbidities and multimorbidities. What syndemics is, is it pushes us to think about The fact that diseases never exist in isolation. And when we talk more about COVID, we can talk more about what that looks like. But diabetes may travel, for example, within a population and cluster often with depression, for example. And so that's the first rule. Number one, that two diseases cluster together or two or more conditions. Often people experience more than one condition. And you can see those kind of diseases of poverty, especially clustering among some communities and not others. And the second rule is that there is an explicit interaction among the conditions that cluster together. So this brings together uh, clinical medicine, um, studies of biology, of psychophysiology that really bring into focus how diseases in the body, um, how society gets under the skin. So going back to the example of diabetes and depression, how inflammation or heightened release of cortisol due to you know, microaggressions or structural violence over time contribute to high levels of cortisol in the body, which then work on the cells to make you insulin resistant. So there is actual psychophysiology that links distress and diabetes, for example, and there's a number of conditions that you can see this in, for example, um, in- including, for example, like um, immune responses uh, already weakened by cardiometabolic conditions and a response to an infection, like acute respiratory infection, like like COVID. So um, I also like to argue that when we think about this interaction, it's not just biological. So there's some who think this biological, biological interaction is what makes it syndemic. And I would argue that obviously mental health plays a really important role. So psychological and biological interactions are fundamental to what is health. But if you go back to the WHO definition, you know, it's social, as well as psychological and biological um, ways of, of being, of, of be, being healthy or unhealthy. So also thinking about, and when I and through most of my my more ethnographic work, when i thought about what makes this endemic through individual levels, I think about um, stigma is really what comes to, to the forefront of what ties conditions together and obfuscates the experience of one or another. And the third condition is the third rule is that social, political, ecological, or economic factors drive syndemics. And this is really where anthropological theory comes to the forefront from intersectionality to structural violence to, you know, even more traditional kind of institutional ideas about what's driving um, some populations to be sick and others not to be.
0: I want to see if I can make that, uh, that concept a little simpler for our listeners. Because as I hear you describe it, really what I'm hearing is a much more holistic view of how health is impacted and not just in the moment at the present, but the impact of historical policies or environment or historical events, all all impacting what is happening today.
2: Right. I mean, there's no way to get around that. I mean, our... Uh, generations before us. I mean, even if you look at epigenetics, we know that even things that have happened to um, some populations and not others have deeply affected. I mean, some of the earliest work on epigenetics from the Dutch famines indicated that external stressors have fundamental long-term effects on people's bodies, right? Turn on genes or turn off genes, along with Holocaust victims, um, survivors, um, and, and many others, especially African-Americans, we've seen that there are extraordinary impacts of is historical inequalities and oppression and trauma on the body. So what syndemics does is it allows us to put all of these factors in conversation because whenever we're studying one disease, if you look at it in a vacuum, you're never going to understand it or solve it. And Band-Aids never work. They, they are used all the time and always fail. But if you wanna sum it up, the easiest way to think about what is a syndemic two or more conditions clustering together, that there's a fundamental interaction that um, makes their, their, the experience worse for that population affected, and that social, political, ecological, or, or um, economic factors drive that clustering and interaction.
0: Dr. Like, share with us how you would describe a syndemic. I mean, I'm just looking for to give our listeners another opportunity to help digest this information, because this is a concept that will be new to a lot of people.
1: Well, thank you. And uh, you're right. The concept can sometimes be very complicated. So I'm just going to put on my physician's hat for a moment and think about that when my patients came in to see me, they tend not to just come with one disease at a time, but they often have multiple conditions that are taking place. Uh, many of which are the ones that uh, the Movement is Life Caucus have been dealing with, such as diabetes and osteoporosis and depression and arthritis and mobility limitations. And the thing is, though, that in medicine, when we've learned, we only hear usually about, quote, comorbidities, coexisting conditions, but it strips away the social and environmental contexts in which people live, and it strips away any knowledge about how did people develop these conditions in the first place, and sometimes reduces it to just genetics, uh, and leaves out all the other major factors. The other piece for me, syndemic, when I started learning about this, Dr. Merrill Singer, I believe, was one of the originators in the mid-1990s, and he coined a number of different uh, acronyms. I think the first was SABA syndemic, which was substance abuse, violence, and AIDS. And there were similar ones uh, in the Hispanic Latino community with uh, the VIDA, V-I-D-D-A syndemic, with violence and immigration stress, diabetes, depression, uh, and again, I, I think abuse. Uh, oh, that was the one I
2: developed in my first book, so I could talk that's about That's right,
1: so that's <laughs> Dr. Mendenhall and her work with syndemic suffering, which I highly recommend to folks, because this is what's informed me. But the piece that, that I find very interesting is, when you hear the word epidemic, we get very nervous quickly, like we're dealing with, and we have endemics, and we have pandemics that we're living through now, but there was no language to create the immediacy and the urgency to dealing with other conditions. And I often, when I share with my clinical colleagues, syndemic, it's spelled S-Y-N, not S-I-N, because people tend to think, what do you mean? It's about sin and evil and stuff like that. So for me, the syndemic is a way to tie these aspects together. Um, it builds also, for those of you that have listened to other Movement is Life podcasts, Dr. Claire Pomeroy had two previous excellence sessions dealing with social determinants of health issues. From her work uh, both before and during her time at the Lasker Foundation. And as I listened to that, and as I worked come to, come to several of the previous Movement Is Life Caucus meetings and spoken, back in 2017, uh, when we discussed social determinants of health, I said, maybe we could come up with an acronym or mnemonic for the vicious cycle uh, that uh, Dr, Dr. O'Connor has described and i don't know if this is the right sort of uh, mnemonic but i called it mad hoop m a d d h o o p with the m being mobility limitations the a arthritis the d diabetes mellitus another d depression heart disease o obesity o osteoporosis and pain because that was a way to link these sort of things together and as we look back at so many of the conferences that have taken place over the years dealing with is the, the isms, whether it's racism and sexism and ageism and ableism, all the isms and their different incarnations and the work in community to deal with it. It seemed to me that the syndemic concept would be one way of tying these things together. Uh, needless to say though, that we tend still not to hear it in the press, in the, in the media. So the question is, can the word, you know, it exists in academic circles. But how do we bring it into the mainstream?
2: I think that's a really important point. I um, I think another way of thinking about it for a clinical audience is thinking about what the endpoint is. So if someone walks into your clinic and you're looking at them, often as a physical being, someone with diabetes, for example, or someone with HIV or someone with depression. Instead, they're actually walking into with a syndemic cluster. So they have maybe domestic violence going on. They have had untreated diabetes or undiagnosed diabetes for a decade, and now it's getting worse. They maybe have an infection, now COVID. It could have been HIV. It could have been another one that they carry with them as well and that they're taking care for. Um, And then they're managing um, the structural violence of clinical medicine or the, the kind of complicatedness of actually accessing care. So what they have is, is a syndemic problem. They don't, they're not just a diabetes patient or an HIV patient or someone living with depression and seeking care. They have the, the actual interaction of all those conditions.
0: Let me ask, and I think I know the answer, but you, you two are the experts, so I'm going to ask you, do you consider the COVID-19 pandemic that we're currently living through a syndemic? Dr. Mendenhall...
2: Yeah, it's interesting to think to see um, how people are reacting to what we're seeing. So, if the um, Merle Singer, the architect of syndemic theory, he first wrote about we talked about him a bit earlier, he's he first wrote about um, and i heard him talk about how he used to um, scribble it in in um, at the diner on napkins ideas about what is a syndemic. Um, but he was working with HIV because in the early days of the HIV epidemic, he saw that people in the inner city in Hartford who are really affected, who are dying who were um, struggling with HIV also were struggling with violence and substance abuse. So we said you can't understand HIV without really thinking about these critical interactions of these other conditions. They are what make people sick. This endemic makes people sick. So if we look at what's making people sick with COVID, it is the endemic, right? We're looking at the structural inequality and the structural racism in the United States. If you look at the Navajo reservation, if you see the distribution among African-Americans, for example, in in Chicago, we're seeing extraordinary inequalities around the nation. These are historical inequalities that are existing and are just taken out of the shadows through COVID because it's affecting the fault lines of sickness that we already have. That is what makes it systemic. And so it's very interesting to also see you know, the public talking about these health inequalities that we have, that we've all been writing about for a really long time. And it's important to say that COVID is pandemic, but it's endemic differently in different places. So how it's hitting, I mean, if you look at, I mean, it's pandemic, it's hit New Zealand, but it certainly hasn't affected people, especially, you know, um, Maori in the same way that um, Native Americans in the United States have been affected. It's not the same experience in part because of the political response. And if we see the political response in the U.S. as part of why COVID is so is endemic and so um, widespread, we can understand a little bit more about, know,
1: why people are sick. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that that COVID-19 is both a pandemic and it's very much part of a syndemic. And again, as we look at the articles that are increasingly being published in JAMA, uh, in various medical journals, public health journals, as well as uh, on the media, you know, the whole discussion about the disparities and the the increased death rates in African-American, Latino, uh, Asian Pacific Islander communities, uh, Native American communities, uh, and then if we also look through the life cycle, you know, in older adults, uh, in different settings, uh, the syndemic concept really lends itself to beginning to think about and hopefully generate interventions to begin to deal with these things. Too often, I re- I do remember back probably in the late nineteen in the late nineties. Uh, HRSA funded what were called health disparities collaboratives, and they started off looking in federally qualified health centers with uh, diabetes, with heart disease, with asthma, with depression, and they developed quality improvement teams and community partnerships, and they, started to, they really were looking at one disease at a time. Then over time, they said, gee, we're developing similar, similar, issues, similar interventions, similar challenges came up, and they said, maybe there's something about the chronicity of these things that cut across. So I think that there are infectious disease syndemics, there are non-infectious disease syndemics, there are mixed types of syndemics. And and again, if you even go back to the pandemic flu uh, in 1918 or so, it was then followed very quickly by tuberculosis, if my memory serves me. And so people were talking about coexisting epidemics at that time. And so there's a book called The Anthropology of Infectious Disease that Dr. Singer wrote which really aptly describes this, and it relates to Ebola and and many other, you know, sort of global health conditions that people are challenged with to figure out why did these diseases emerge from the social conditions, from the environmental conditions, from the economic and the political conditions. So again, I think that the syndemic concept lends itself to the work of Movement is Life.
0: We completely are aligned uh, that the syndemic concept relates to the work that we're doing at Movement is Life. And, and Dr. Like you already commented on how we look at uh, our vicious cycle where uh, an individual develops, for example, knee pain. They become less active. They're more sedentary. They don't change their eating patterns, so they gain weight. That added weight puts more pressure on the joint, and now they're in a cycle of joint pain that ultimately results... In severe arthritis. But what is linked to that immobility and obesity is the development of diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, depression. And I I like to use the term that is an equal opportunity employer. Anyone can get trapped in that medical vicious cycle. You could be an affluent white male CEO. You could be a low income woman of color. But we know that women individuals of color and even low-income Caucasian rural Americans are far more likely to get trapped in that medical vicious cycle because surrounding that is a ring of social determinants of health, and surrounding that is public and private policy. And we can even put a new ring, outer ring, which would be pandemic or syndemic, because all of these factors impact the patient or the individual at the very center of, of the of the conversation, so I do think it is a fascinating and very appropriate way for us to look at disparities because what we 're really trying to accomplish is you know, how can we decrease disparities, improve health equity, and improve the health of people in our communities? I want to turn. a minute to how we can apply the concept of of syndemic in real-life medical practice, especially when our doctors and nurses have such limited time with patients. So how can we screen for and address these social determinants of health that you both have identified as so critical uh, in in the syndemic concept? Dr. Like, we'll start with you for this one.
1: Well, you've raised certainly one of the big challenges for us in clinical practice because, and you as well as an orthopedic surgeon know that in our busy practices, there's a lot going on at multiple levels, where often one aspect is that much of our work is downstream versus upstream sorts of orientations. Uh, reimbursement is more usually for what's called, quote, rescue medicine versus primary care and preventive and public services. We have a lack of time. We often have competing demands. The clinical focus tends to mainly be on diagnosis and treatment and rehabilitation or palliative and end-of-life care. Often we have a lack of education of clinicians about sociobehavioral behavioral sciences and public health in medical school and residency training. And I can speak if interested a little bit more about what's going on to change that. There are also technology issues galore, especially in the wake of COVID-19, as we know with more places moving to telehealth, telemedicine type services, and whether there's a digital divide in terms of whether people can even access these services, just as we're busy trying to very quickly uh, implement them and doing this in a safe way Um, Now, fortunately, there is a growing interest and activities involved in screening and addressing the social determinants of health. I'll just mention a few initiatives. Uh, CMS has their Accountable Care Communities models, and they've developed screening tools to help find out about social needs that people have, Uh, indeed, electronic health records. And again, Dr. Pomeroy spoke a little bit about this in one of her previous uh, podcasts have fields in place that permit uh, members of the health professional team to collect that information, code it, and potentially be reimbursed for developing interventions to deal with that. The American Academy of Family Physicians has an excellent uh, thing called the Everyone with O-N-E capitalized project and a website with all kinds of tools that clinicians can use to begin to elicit social determinants of health. Uh, and then the National Association of Community Health Centers has a tool called Prepare, P-R-A-P-A-R-E, which is the protocol for responding to and assessing patients' assets, risks, and experiences. And what some places are doing now is they've also connect. The, you know, you can do screening, but if you don't have any place to refer people, it's not a comprehensive system. And if you you screen inappropriately, there are ethical issues that can arise. For trying to collect this information in a, in a culturally insensitive way or in a stereotypic way. But in terms of community resources, again, uh, there's a, a, a web a, a technology thing called Aunt Bertha and another one called Healthify, which permit people to look up zip codes and find out what sorts of social services may be available to help individuals, but being mindful that uh, just because someone is there doesn't mean it's truly accessible, and sometimes these things are not updated completely. Uh, the last thing I'll just mention is, in a quick and dirty way, we developed a mnemonic. Uh, if, you, if you remember Greek mythology, uh, Theseus uh, was the uh, founder uh, hero of Athens, and he fought the Minotaur in a labyrinth. And many of our patients live in a whole labyrinth of challenges relating to their social and economic circumstances. And so the mnemonic is a way that we often will use to teaching our medical students how to elicit social determinants of health. The T stands for transportation issues. How do people travel or not travel to go places, housing and in potential instability in different types of housing situations, or even if one is homeless or if one lives in a nursing home or congregate living or a group home or a prison. Uh, The next E is for education, which can relate to information literacy and health literacy languages that are spoken. Uh, You know, then again, this also relates to the digital divide. There's another E in Theseus, which is about eating and food insecurity, food deserts, uh, safety, is the S for interpersonal abuse, social safety, mental health issues through the life cycle. The E of, the next E is the economic situation, which can relate to employment status, insurance coverage, workplace issues. We again know now about the increased COVID infections that have been happening in some meatpacking plants, poultry and other settings. The U is utilities with electricity, phone, internet, heat, air conditioning. And the last S are social supports. And again, when we think of social and physical distancing and later contact tracing that will need to take place, what are the impacts in terms of how this plays out in communities? So believe it or not, some years ago, the Theseus mnemonic was used in our medical intensive care unit from some intensivists who were concerned with the fact that patients were being readmitted to the hospitals with diabetic ketoacidosis, with asthma, with respiratory conditions of different sort. And you know they treat them well in the hospital, but send them out and they'd come back in again. And so they wanted to start finding out, are there different social determinants that could be related to their repeated missions or their longer lengths of stay? And some of that was driven in part for financial reasons because if people were being readmitted in less than 30 days with heart failure or COPD and a 3% penalty from CMS, so now there's a financial reason to begin to address this. So there are a lot of different aspects to the social determinants piece, uh, but it is challenging to bring into play.
0: Dr. Mendenhall, I would like you to comment on that too. The challenges that you see for clinicians, for primary care doctors, for healthcare providers to incorporate these concepts of syndemic into the delivery of healthcare.
2: When I think about uh, interventions, I often think about it through the framework of diabetes because I spent the last 15 years studying people's lives with diabetes who often have depression or experience other kinds of social problems. And I think this mnemonic is really helpful. Um, and I look at interventions through four, um, levels. So I'll just mention the four levels and then I'll talk about the clinical, um, focus, um, because everyone wants a silver bullet. Like everyone wants to be like, okay, well, what do we do? Okay. Well, the silver bullet would be patient centered medical homes. Um, but that's also, you know, there's a lot of people who've been writing about that and showed how impactful they are. And they really would be the biggest struggle that people have around the world who I've interviewed with diabetes is they can't. If they have to take one day off of work to go to the doctor, it's just to treat one disease. They spend hours and hours and hours, and they only are partially cared for. Um, And sometimes you have to pay out of pocket. Sometimes you don't. It all is built into the health system, whatever health system they're facing. So um, what I often talk about responses for people who've experienced, for example, the VETUS endemic, which is. Uh, Um, something I came up with working with Mexican immigrant women in Chicago with diabetes who also face depression, um, extraordinary different times of abuse, um, financial insecurity, um, and and immigration stress and fear and and isolation. So I usually talk about upstream solutions which are all policy relevant and then clinical interventions, community-based interventions and downstream solutions because I actually think solving syndemics cannot be only in the clinic. The clinic is such a small piece of how you can actually help people. I think I read this morning that someone that um, I think it was like on Twitter of a, of a physician who was like, I always um, tell my residents that the work you do in the clinic is only 10 to 15% of what you can do to have, um, encourage people to live a healthy life. Um, so when we think about, I'll go specifically to clinical interventions for people with chronic illness, especially with COVID, it really brings um, basically to the forefront um, these these struggles is what patient centered medical homes do is basically coordinate um, people's ability to re- to kind of manage all of their conditions. People in the U.S are over-medicated and their medicine is often not well um, organized in a way that really affects them. It's really expensive. Um, They may be having conflicting medication or they may just be on too much and it makes them lethargic and sick. And, And it affects all of these issues like moving or, you know, following clinical recommendations that don't always make sense culturally for them. Um, also, and you know, I had my first baby in London and what blew me away was when I would talk to the general um, practitioners that they would say, cause of course I would query them and ask them I'm an anthropologist. So I'd ask them all sorts of other questions <laughs> unrelated to, um, why I was there, but they would say that they were incentivized by keeping people out of the clinic. So if someone actually went off insulin or went off, metformin or whatever they were taking to control their insulin they were incentivized so that is fundamentally the structure in which i mean we've been talking about this in the u.s how do you flip the 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 structure in which clinicians care for people how do you actually um transform how we think about and actually deliver care that's um encourages people to, to be healthier and live healthier lives. Um, the other factor is, is medical teams, how we actually see what a clinic looks like. Clinics that don't have a lawyer on their team or a social worker that can actually do social work and counseling and then um, you know are, are really facing an uphill battle. Um, for example, if someone comes into your clinic and has a consistent cough and runny nose and the problem is mold, Medicating that is not going to make them better. You actually need someone who can go to their, um, their, their, um, landlord and actually get them to fix the mold, right? You need someone who can actually defend them and, and fix the social determinative health. You know, you can understand it, or you can give a medication to deal with it, but that's not going to solve anything. Um, and also, you know, really thinking about, um, in the U S this is one of the best examples of how people, um in the U.S. can learn from global health, can learn from other places, best practices, is really elevating our mid-level professionals. Because of the strength of the American Medical Association, still we don't have enough middle-level professionals providing the care that mo- that we need. We have a dearth of um, general practitioners in the United States. We have primary care is... is um, is marginalized and still we don't have enough people providing this care we really need to elevate nursing we really need to be able to um, provide health care for example in the ymca this needs to be not just in the clinic but it needs to be community-wide um and then also house visits you i think you mentioned um bob the super utilizers model or you were referring to it but really focusing it on going to making house visits. During COVID, this is actually an amazing time to kind of re-energize and rethink how we deliver care and we're having these mobile units for testing, but also going into the into people's homes. Um, there's a great study in the 1995 heat wave in Chicago where most people died who were elderly were because of social isolation. Um, and it's really important to think about, and super-utilizers also focus on people who go into to the emergency room and don't have health care, but actually going to them. So if we're going to the elderly to care for them, if we're going to people who, you know, are facing these 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 um, social determinants and getting and, you know, getting through the barrier of transportation, which everywhere in the world is one of the biggest barriers besides losing wages to actually seeking care. You can go beyond um, and actually get to the heart of, of the matter, which is people who, who just need to be, you know, to um, to be checked on and, and cared for. Um, and so those are kind of the clinical recommendations I always suggest. And then community-based um, interventions that are very much aligned with these. When you think about something that's endemic, there's always some sort of psychological or social factor that is basically coexisting and underlined and always overlooked in clinical interactions because clinicians just don't have the time that they need to actually care for people as people because they are so overburdened by, by um, expectations of time, of patient load, of, of financing, that they can't actually fund, fundamentally do the care that they often want to care. So one of the easiest is basically having people, clinicians who speak multiple languages and not always having to depend on a translator. Um, also um, at community-based interventions are improving access to counselors who speak the language of the patient, Um, especially the first language, because sometimes when you speak about deep trauma, for example, um, or stresses in your daily life, it's harder to talk about in your second language. And that's very common. And also making house calls, uh, mental health care at community centers, also apps are really impactful um, for getting people the care that they need. And I think that's another thing with COVID that is totally transforming how we're thinking about healthcare and healthcare delivery. And then also peer um, group counseling, not only for AA, but also for diabetes and thinking about, you know, or um, all sorts of conditions, because what these kind of support groups do is they provide spaces for conversation and they provide spaces for people to come together and find others to talk through their social and, and maybe psychological stresses that are affecting their physical body as well as their social life.
0: So this is fascinating. And what I'm hearing from both of you are comments uh, that, to me, I distill down to doctors and our traditional healthcare providers simply don't have enough time to provide the kind of care that they want to patients. They may not also be skilled in knowing the right questions to ask patients to uncover uh, some of these syndemic challenges that so, uh, directly or indirectly impact their health. Um, and we don't have resources aligned. So the system is, is still quite broken as we're, as we're trying to improve health. I'm just going to let, I'm just going to pause and let you comment on my comment first.
1: Right. So I would very much endorse that. And, uh, want to add to what Emily said and what you said. And there's also a conundrum because there are plenty of physicians and nurses and others who say, is it really my responsibility to medicalize social determinants of health? You know, we're already busy enough. We don't have the knowledge and skills. And is there a downside to really taking this on? In fact, there was a controversial op-ed in the Wall Street Journal I think back in the fall from a, a person who said teaching about these things in medical school is us, taking us away from some of the very important things that doctors need to learn about in terms of basic physiology and all that. So it's kind of creating a dichotomy. By the same token, the New England Journal of Medicine has an excellent thing called case studies in social medicine, which they've now been publishing on a on a regular basis, which shows how physicians working in teams with others, as Emily mentioned, and talking about how medical home models and other sort of integrated delivery system models can make a difference. And so I really want to endorse the fact that any single practitioner cannot do this by themselves. There's really a need for an expanded interdisciplinary team of healthcare, I would add public health, social service professionals. There are community health workers who are increasingly getting involved in these activities. Emily mentioned medical legal partnerships. So even if we screen for some social determinative health issues such as a housing problem or uh, a benefit for somebody who has a child with special needs, we as a clinician may not have the skills to deal with that whereas there are attorneys who we can work together with. There are even medical accountancy partnerships that are developing. One really fundamental thing, which is also a part of many medical homes, is the idea of creating a patient or family or community advisory council, where the input comes from people themselves, from diverse backgrounds, from different demographics. So people of different ages, gender, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, language, LGBTQ veterans, deaf and hard of hearing, uh, you know, can all help teach us what we don't know in the industry. And I think the most advanced models. Uh, there are places like the Institute for Patient and Family-Centered Care, the Plaintree Institute, where people themselves are teaching us what we really need to do in a way that matters to them. I would also add to this that. Um, Public libraries are other critical partners as trusted places for information. So we have patients who will leave our office. They can go online. How do they vet different things going on? And so the National Network of Libraries of Medicine actually has done a lot of work in the area of health literacy and cultural competency as a place to creating a safe place for people to gather. Again, this is pre-COVID. and I think that movement in life, movement is life, has been right out in front with this. With many of the community-based programs dealing with movement, with osteoarthritis, and with these different uh, syndemically connected conditions. What we've not yet been done, and that's why Emily and Meryl Singer's and other people's work in anthropology and social science is important, is bring that science to us. We get the science of biology, and you know, and and biophysics coming in, but the socio behavioral sciences are absolutely critical, uh, finally, uh, even now in New York, there are faith based collaborations that I think are getting off the ground as places where uh, the the churches synagogues mosques other places can be safe places for doing testing for COVID and potentially linking up for contract tracing. So I think there are many different constituencies that can be brought together, must be brought together, so that it's not just for the the medical system to do this by themselves. It's just not possible.
2: Yeah, and I'd say that building off what you said, I think there's actually two ways of looking at this. I think that if you want to provide syndemic care, you have to address both it from the top down and the bottom up right so we're talking about the top down we have to see how fragmented our health system our health financing is number 1 we have five or more private health insurance companies per state that are dominating the scene per state so that fragments them from virginia to maryland to delaware to you know to iowa to california Um, So we have all of these small pools of people who are able to actually manage costs. And what that brings us to the fact is that pharmaceutical companies, medical device manufacturers, medical um, providers, they actually have so much more power. And we all know this, right? There's way more power um, that they hold in what things cost and what can be delivered, how and when and where, than actually providers or even health administrators. And that comes down to a fundamental question of financing. And then we have five different Federal programs for providing care for people, and those have historical roots, and and a lot of um, you know they're really really fundamental programs. We think of Medicaid, we think of IHS, we think of Medicare, we think of VA, we think of what we think of these programs that are fundamental to care for caring for people. But what happens with this fragmentation? Well, it limits our power to determine how the system itself is structured. And that means we have less power to negotiate price. And it means we have less power over how care is provided and delivered. And that is a fundamental federal question that needs to be structured from the top. And that is what Bernie is pushing. That is what um, Warren is pushing. You know, that is this conversation on Medicare for all. And although I don't think it will end up looking exactly what you know, like what um, the most idealistic um, progressive agenda will look like, something has to change. And what COVID has done is it has cracked open all of these extraordinary inequalities that are because of the fragmentation. So I really think this is a moment to learn, and hopefully, something will change. But on the other side, we have the bottom up issue. Which is really how, what the thing I was talking about earlier is, so on the one hand, when you ever think about health systems, you think about health financing, and then you think of health provision. So what does that look like? So if you do have a large Medicare for All, you could, you know, probably the U.S., it, it won't be, end up being an extraordinary federal program. It'll be some, hopefully less fragmented. But, you know, you can decide to go to public or private providers in many countries that have a single-payer system. So what does that look like? Well, communities can design those for themselves, right? That's often how it is. We have private, I worked at Cook County Hospital for a really long, for five years, you know, studying and doing research and, and, and assisting on different programs and doing some translation. And, you know, that, that is an amazing place, first of all. Um, and they do incredibly important work. Um, and it's very different than Georgetown, where I work now in that hospital, right? They have different systems in place and programs. There are one's a public and what's a one's a private hospital. And those are fundamentally different, which are then fundamentally different from from primary health care centers, right? From community clinics that are doing that solid everyday justice work, social medicine. And you know, really thinking about how that care is organized and how it's delivered is a fundamental question, but it's fundamentally even different than the financing and getting both bottom up and top down organization, even for clinicians to work together with idealistically with lawyers and social workers who are, who are not just doing paperwork but also providing counseling and, you know, having a psychologist on staff, it was just there fundamentally every day to care for patients. Um, if we think about the extraordinary effect of anxiety and and PTSD and depression, especially among low income communities who are just struggling with what it means to be poor in America, you know, having those support systems need to be in place. Um, so, anyways, that you know, really thinking about these two areas is just so critical if we're actually going to address the dynamics.
1: Yeah. Let me just jump in on one other piece and I'll say something that may be a little controversial, which Mm -hmm. is that uh, uh, many years ago, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation came out with a monograph called A New Way to Talk About the Social Determinants of Health. And what they did is they interviewed people on the left and right and the middle of the political spectrum. And we're probably moving a little bit into policy types of things here, which is outside my area of expertise but they made the point that the language we use even terms such as disparities and inequities speaks to one side uh, you know social justice of the political spectrum more than other side. And so they said, what kind of language can we use that will also engage people, you know, who may not support some of the things that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and other solutions to things, and also maybe connect with different industries in the corporate sector in other ways, such as opportunity and journey. What are the emotional memes, if you will, that connect with folks. And so when we, and we've seen this come up even amongst our medical students, because when we start to teach and try to introduce some of these ideas into the curriculum, they are also all over the map politically and ideologically on these things. And so we have tried to find a language that uh, for lack of a better term is not partisan or bipartisan, but which is transpartisan, if that even exists. How can we build those bridges to talk with each other And that's, again, another possibility for the syndemic concept, because as you've mentioned, Dr. O'Connor and Dr. Mendenhall, it affects everyone in different ways, you know, in rural areas, people of all different persuasions and backgrounds. And so I think we need to be mindful of the language that hopefully builds bridges in this process. And it's not easy.
2: I could not agree more with your comment because what I think syndemics does is it provides this way for us from all different disciplines and all parts of um, academia and clinical practice and policy to be in conversation because it brings together and recognizes all of these important aspects that really fundamentally affect sickness and what that means. And so I really appreciate that comment.
0: I want to go back to a comment, Dr. Like, that you made and Dr. Mendenhall, you had a follow-up and and that was about the importance of this kind of cross disciplinary approach, where where the healthcare team is a more expanded team, where for example there's a social worker or a behavioral health uh, trained individual or even a lawyer for legal counsel, right? Where so so, Doctor Like, you have been a leader. In um, education regarding cultural competency, and tell us about how uh, some of that work that you've done support these concepts and and movement towards cross disciplinary teams.
1: Well, thank you for that. And you know, I uh, I'm a learner like all the other people are in this whole area uh-huh. because inter interprofessional teamwork. Uh, is still fairly new in the medical curricula. We often are trained with each other, nurses with nurses, social workers with social workers, doctors with doctors, and creating those spaces that are safe and really teaching about teamwork and collaborative skills is still a, very much a work in progress. Um, there, there are issues, fortunately, just a few examples. Uh, the Liaison Committee on Medical Education has developed certain standards uh, that have helped push medical schools. And so I'll speak mainly about them around the country to begin to address this. So standard 7.5 speaks to teaching people about societal problems. Many of the things we've been talking about on today's during today's discussion. 7.6 is about cultural competency and healthcare disparities. And as Emily knows, my many of my medical anthropology colleagues are not particularly in love with the term cultural competence uh, because it can often be used in ways that uh, reify, that are stereotypical and miss a great deal of the intricacies that exist. So other people use terms like cultural humility and cultural sensitivity and cultural responsiveness, effectiveness. Uh, I don't particularly care too much about, you know, what the language is per se, as much as do people start to really practice that kind of contextualized, person-centered, family-centered care. And then the third standard, 7.8, is interprofessional collaborative skills. This is also going on with the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education in their milestones and their clear requirements so that residency training programs are bringing this in and particularly in the areas relating to quality improvement, patient safety and high reliability organizations, which are very much dependent on teams if we're going to reduce medical errors, medical mistakes and communicate better. And so that has been an entry point for some of the teamwork efforts going on. I will also say that the uh, American Medical Association has adopted, we we know of the basic sciences and the clinical sciences, and now they talk about health systems sciences, which sort of is an umbrella term that brings together, I think, all the other things that haven't yet found a home, whether it's population health. And ethical issues and all of that. And uh, our medical school is one of 32 schools that have been part of the AMA's Accelerating Change in Medical Education Consortium, where people are beginning to transform the curriculum. And some are really focusing heavily on teamwork, others are focusing on leadership issues, others are dealing with the medical economics pieces. And interestingly, now the USMLE which since things test often drive things is actually incorporating test questions about this so that to the degree that people worry about passing exams, I think much more is going to be reported about this going forward. Uh, I won't go into details about uh, what we're doing at our medical school other than to say there are opportunities, the students are often hungry for these sorts of things, there's particularly a need for faculty development, because most of us were not trained in this way of thinking. And so having the knowledge, you know, having the skills, finding the time and the curriculum to do this, and doing it in ways that are practical, I think talking about teams is very different than really becoming a team. And so it means learning together finding ways to, if you will, synergize the curricula of different health professions, schools, and also seeing high-functioning teams in action. Again, I think actually, Dr. O'Connor, you can mention, probably say stuff about this because as an orthopedic surgeon, you are inevitably working with different teams of people, you know, in terms of dealing with hip and knee replacement surgery, dealing with the disparities issues, and, and so uh, this, this is not alien, I'm sure, to your work at Yale.
0: No, I I love teams. I I love building teams and being on teams, and uh, I don't think that there's anything that we can do in medicine by ourselves. But I was actually thinking as we were commenting, so, you know, what would my dream team be, right? As we think about addressing syndemics, we know, and some of our listeners may know this or may not, um, that the Affordable Care Act, I believe it was the Affordable Care Act, started to require hospitals and health systems to do community needs assessments. And so hospitals and healthcare systems, every year or two, they update it annually, but they, they, they do a community needs assessment to go out and say, what are the medical needs in our community and how are we as a hospital or health system working to make the health of the members in our, our community better? But I don't believe that we have all the right people responsible for those reports and those outcomes. Because in an ideal world, if we had not just the health system, but we had community leaders and we had the mayor or politicians and we had lawyers and we had social workers. And I mean we really need the village to be responsible to say, how are we going to improve? health in these communities. It is not just up to healthcare providers. And I'm not I'm not saying that healthcare providers are not part of the problem and part of the solution. But as we look to these broader issues, right, the healthcare providers can't do it all. And part of the frustration that I hear that happens and that I see that happens in clinical practice is people get frustrated because the the doctors, the nurses are like, listen, all I can do is provide the care I can provide here. I can't go help them in their home environment. I can't make their neighborhood safer. I can't address the fact that they have a food desert and it's difficult for them to buy fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, So I think that we need a fundamentally new way of thinking in terms of how we're even addressing these community health needs assessments. So I would just like your comments on that. We'll start with you, Dr. Mendenhall. Yeah,
2: I think that's really important. And I also think, like I mentioned earlier, that it requires this complete rethink on what primary health care is. So there's something that we talk about Medicare for all, we think about health care for all. Um, There's a huge movement decades and decades long on primary health care for all and what that could mean in the U.S. And frankly, I think that um, doctors are so expensive and really unnecessary to do a lot of this work. And so having really integrative teams uh, led by nurse practitioners, um, some of the most progressive health professionals that I've ever talked to are, are in the nursing program at UNC. They brought me in to consult on syndemics and they are gung ho. They were like, this is what we do. We can create systems and programs that can provide this care. This is what we do, this is our bread and butter. And bringing them out of the clinic, going just, Getting to the clinic is such a barrier, putting them in the community. And you know, one of my favorite ideas is just every YMCA having a primary health care center that has a counselor, a nurse practitioner, some legal counsel on board who are there who can help people maintain their health. Because YMCAs for me are ways in which we address community health. Why is there not some sort of wellness primary health care? Um, located in those fundamental systems that are all over the nation already. So really it's, it's, you know, this is what Paul Farmer says all the time or the, you know, Joya McCursey at Partners in Health. They're always talking about how we reimagine what's possible. And I really think they're right. Um, how can we reimagine in the U.S. what primary healthcare looks like? It doesn't need to be in a hospital, in a clinic A place that's so hard to get to. Um, These minute clinics have really, or in urgent care, have radically transformed how families can care for their loved ones. So, why can't we do that in these other places that we connect so closely to community health?
0: I think we can imagine that we could and that we need to, the three of us. Uh, (laughs) The challenge is that, as we all know, we're coming up on the top of the hour. I'm going to ask a final question of each of you. If you had the the power of the universe to affect one change in the way we're delivering healthcare now, what would it be?
1: Can I have a one with several parts to it?
0: <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> so so let, let me just quickly throw out just a few thoughts. Uh, the first is that. Uh, Some of our early work related to the culturally and linguistically appropriate service standards that the Office of Minority Health developed, the class standards. And I think particularly as we're dealing with COVID, this also deals with the community benefits requirements, that those class standards are a way for beginning to think about how do you tailor services to different communities in partnership with those communities, bringing in leadership. And perhaps that can be the topic for uh, a future conversation. So that's number one. Number two, uh, as a part of this, is that uh, I also think that we need to deal with what the World Health Organization has called the infodemic, which is the epidemic of misinformation and disinformation that is coming out not only relating to COVID, but to many other conditions, because it also leads to some of the political aspects to this as to whose interests are being served and not served by what's going on. There are conspiracy theories galore that are out there that are being disseminated in the communities, whether it's about 5G or whether there's a documentary called Plandemics, you know, which has been produced, which by a virologist and by others, which if people pay attention to these sort of things and get involved with certain anti-vaxxer and other anti-anti things, it's going to make it very, very difficult to change our healthcare system. So I think we need to deal with these infodemics. Um, the third thing I'll mention is that while we talk about the social determinants of health, there's also the political determinants of health and if we don't find ways to build those bridges and have those dialogues, we can understand, we can develop interventions, but if resources are allocated in ways that really don't take account of these things, it's going to be difficult. Two more things under my part, my one thing. I apologize for disobeying a little bit. As, as broad as the syndemics concept is, I believe that Dr. Singer has even gone further to talk about eco-syndemics which is the effect of changing climate and the fact that heat waves and environmental racism and why are some communities affected more than others? So if we do this work and leave out the effect of, and you mentioned this, Emily, of the ecology and the environment, uh, that's a huge miss. And much of our problem now, you know, comes from the the deforestation, from strip mining, from other things that are taking place that will worsen these different types of syndemics. And my final piece that I would just mention is something that was just published yesterday in JAMA, uh, in a uh, article called COVID-19 and health equity, a new kind of quote, herd immunity, in quotes. And I just like to read this. The striking racial slash ethnic disparities reported for COVID-19 infection, testing and disease burden." are a clear reminder that failure to protect the most vulnerable members of society, not only harms them, but also increases the risk of spread of the virus with devastating health and economic consequences for all. COVID-19 disparities are not the fault of those who are experiencing them, but rather reflect social policies and systems that create health disparities in good times and inflate them in a crisis. The US must develop a new kind of quote herd immunity where resistance to the spread of poor health in a population occurs when a sufficiently high proportion of individuals across all racial, ethnic and social class groups are protected from and thus quote immune to negative social determinants. And it's a wonderful short article by Dr. David Williams and Dr. Lisa Cooper. And I know that Dr. Williams has also spoken at Movement is Life in the past.
0: Yes, uh, Dr. Williams is outstanding, and uh, we've been delighted to have him uh, be a keynote speaker for us twice in the past. Um, Dr. Mendenhall, your, your closing thoughts.
2: I guess there's three things, um, and I'll be very brief. Um, number one, I think that this COVID crisis is just bringing, it's the preempt to climate change. So how are our lives going to be radically transformed um, by climate change? that is radically transforming. And what is that going to look like? We're experiencing quarantine right now. What is that going to look like for changing our urban and rural realities, especially people who are living in coastal communities or are going to experience extraordinary drought, um, for example? So this is really preemptive of a very changing human experience. That's number one. Um, The other one is I have this big study looking at the mental health effects of quarantine in South Africa right now. So what does that look like also in the United States? Um, from neighborhood to neighborhood, it's different. Um, from you know, country to country, it's different based on what quarantine means because quarantine has meant really different things across the world, even in the US state to state, even city to city in some cases. So um, what does that mean and how does that affect people in positive or negative ways? Now, quarantine, especially if you don't live with people you feel safe with, can be an extraordinary trauma. And one of my concerns is how this is going to affect children as they grow up and how they see the world. What does this mean, especially for those children who are living in very unsafe spaces um, and also are missing really important social networks um, from schools, but also socialization during really critical times. That's what I'm really concerned about. But the ultimate thing that I'm concerned about in the United States is politics. Because, I mean, I'm very close friends with Rebecca Katz, a leading global health security expert in the United States. And she can tell you, we had all the plans, we had all the ideas, we knew how to address this, but we didn't have the politics right. Inherently, our condition is a problem of politics and we know what to do, we have all the research, we know what's causing these problems, we know the biology, we have all of the experts you could possibly need to solve this. We don't have the politics right. And until we fix the politics of really understanding the problems and creating solutions that are that are real, that will actually make an effect and put them in place, we will not overcome this condition this 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 endemic that is happening in the United States, which is politically driven ultimately. And that's what I that's what I think about.
0: I'm hopeful. One of the lessons that we all learn from this horrible pandemic is how interconnected we all are and how interdependent we all are. And if we're going to allow communities uh, who are disadvantaged to have such horrible health outcomes, those of us who live in communities that are more affluent, of which I'm blessed to live in a more affluent community, uh, start to recognize that. You know, we are all our brothers or sisters keeper. At the end of the day, we all need each other to be healthy. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that one of the good things that could come out of this horrible syndemic pandemic is really a groundswell of people recognizing that we fundamentally have to address these health equity issues across the broad spectrum uh, from you know, political solutions, social solutions, individual solutions, healthcare system solutions. So, so, all right. Uh, I'm going to close with that because we could just keep going on and on about this topic. uh, And we do have to be respectful of our time. So I want to thank our guests for a very engaging discussion and to our audience for listening today. So until next time, everyone please stay safe and strong and active Because movement is life. Thank you. Thank you.
1: you.